All right. Well, there's a debate out there on whether or not golf is a real sport. Okay. Um, you are, they already have their opinions. They all just shouted out at me. So, so if you're a professional golfer, does that count as being a professional athlete? Okay. I hear yes. I hear no. Only if you get paid. Of course they get paid. So, yeah, of course, if that's all there is to it. Yeah, of course they get paid. So, anyway. So I'll just say there's a professional athlete, okay? He's a golfer. His name is Bryson DeChambeau, okay? That's a big, fancy name. Anyway, he said something crazy the other day. And I know I'm like, wow, giving us golf news. Thanks, Pastor Don. That's really great of you. Well, trust me, it's interesting. Here's what he said recently. He says, I'm always trying to add more value to my life in general. I mean, my goal is to live to be 130 or 140 years old. I really think that's possible with today's technology. I think someone's going to do it in the next 30 or 40 years, and I want that person to be me, okay? Um, <laughs> look, I don't know what, what Bryson DeChambeau wants to do to live to be 130 or 140 years old, but whatever it is, I probably don't want to do that. That probably means like do, using some crazy diet or something. He has been like hyper-focused on his health. If you like look at his, how his body has like changed, he's like put on muscle and put on fat and then taking the fat off and weird stuff. It's, that was kind of gross way to put it. But um, he's like super, super health conscious. And here's the thing though, if that was true, like if I could tell you, here's how you could live to be 130, right? How many of you would probably take my advice? If it was guaranteed that if you followed the steps that I gave you, you'd live to be 130 or 140 years old. I mean, that's adding like 40 or 50 years to a lifespan, maybe more for some people. If you're honest, you probably, most of you would probably say, yeah, I'd probably take that deal. If you could tell me for sure, guaranteed, how to live to be 130 or 140 years old. Well, the sad part is I, uh, I can't tell you how to do that. And I'm really skeptical, right? When Bryson DeChambeau says he's going to live to be 140, I'm like, yeah, right. Okay. You guys feel the same way? You're like, ah, there's no way that's going to happen. Well, in today's passage, okay, Jesus is going to offer something and he's going to guarantee something. And he says, I will say this definitively, that if you follow me, you're not going to live to be 130 years old. You're not going to live to be 140 years old. You're going to live forever. Okay. How do you think the crowd responded to him saying, if you follow me, you'll live forever. How do you think they responded to that? Eh, I don't think so. Right. The same way you respond when I say Bryson wants to be 140 years old, the same way you're like, yeah, I don't think so. I don't think that's going to happen. That's the same way that people responded. So I want us to see what they said and what Jesus said in response. So grab your Bibles, turn to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 17. We just studied the rest of this, uh, or not the rest of this, what happened before in John 5, yesterday, not yesterday, on Wednesday. Feels like it was yesterday. We studied it, and Jesus did some crazy things, and the, the weirdest thing that he did, I guess, was he healed somebody on the day of rest, okay, the Sabbath day. And that day is Saturday, right? we know as Saturday, it was a Sabbath. And the Jews had these rules to where they were not supposed to work on the Sabbath. And those weren't just any rules that the Jews followed, they were good rules. It was a good rule that God gave a long time ago. He said, just like God worked for six days in creating the world, and then he rested on the seventh, we should kind of follow a similar pattern. We should work six days a week, and we should rest one day a week. It was a pattern for their good. The problem was the Pharisees and the religious leaders turned that into a big burden for the people that they had to follow all these particular rules. And one of the rules was they weren't allowed to pick anything up on the Sabbath day, okay? That's really weird. They weren't allowed to pick anything up. What's even weirder is if you go to Israel today, they still follow the Sabbath, and if you go in a hotel and you go up an elevator, Pushing an elevator number is counted as work to them. So instead of 
getting to push the button, it stops on every single floor on the Sabbath, okay? So it's super annoying, right? I think that's kind of missing the point of God's Sabbath rules. What do you think? Do you think that's kind of missing the point? Totally missing the point. The whole point was so that they would have a day to rest and think about God, not a day to work and, and make money and do the normal stuff they did. So anyway, that's the scene that we're setting here because Jesus healed someone on the Sabbath, okay? The guy picked up his mat. Remember this scene? He picked up his mat and he walked away. What did the Pharisees say to him? You're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to pick up the mat and walk. They totally missed the point. Now the attention is turned on Jesus. And we finished here in verse 16. I just want to read verse 16 again. It says in John chapter 5, this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So he was healing people on the Sabbath. Now look what he says. This is the beginning of our passage, verse 17, the beginning of our passage tonight. It says, but Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. Okay? That seems like a pretty nice thing to say. Well, okay, God. Jesus says his father's working, and he's working then too. Well, realize what he's saying there. He's making a big point, if you think about it. Does God ever take any days off? Does God take any days off? No, he doesn't. Right? Does God work on the Sabbath? Yeah, he does. Think about it, because he gives us life, and he gives us breath, right? He gave people food. He was always listening to people's prayers. God never took a break. And here's what Jesus says. Hey, why are you getting mad at me for working on the Sabbath? Don't you know that my father, God, works on the Sabbath? I work with him, right? How do you think that made those people feel, that he was calling himself God's son? And they're like, whoa, 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 slow down, buddy. You don't call God your father. That's not cool. Look at verse 18. John explains, he says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, to kill Jesus. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath in their minds, not really in God's mind, he wasn't doing anything wrong. He says, but he was even, ca even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Is that ever a good idea to make yourself equal with God? If you talk to me in small groups and you told me how, you know, yeah, you, you and God, you have a thing and, and you don't have to follow any of God's rules and, and you know, you kind of, you made the world on your own. Like it was you, not, not God, and you were a part of that process. How do you think I would respond to you? I don't think so, bro. Like I don't think that's how this works. I mean, we can kind of understand why the Jews were a little bit perplexed here, but they took it a step too far. They wanted to kill Jesus. They did not like Jesus for doing this. And what Jesus is about to jump into, verses 19 all the way to verse 47, it's a lot of verses, but we're going to look at a three different sections here. And what we're going to find out is Jesus trying to persuade people to believe that he is really the God-man, right? That's the title of tonight's sermon, the God-man. What is that? There's only one person who counts as the God-man, right? The Father does not count as the God-man. The, the Spirit does not count as the God-man. Only Jesus. Fully God, fully man at the same time. And the problem for us is when I say the word Jesus, and I ask you, what do you think of when you think of Jesus? Right, I want you to picture something in your mind. What do you think of? A lot of you probably don't pick, picture like a normal looking person, a person who's five, five foot five, got a beard, you know, doesn't dress too well. You probably think of like some supernatural idea of like, oh, Jesus is his God, right? And that's true. But here's the problem. All of these people are not seeing him as God. They're seeing him as a person just like them, okay? That's the starting point. And that's why I want you to, first of all, I want you to be amazed at all these claims that he's making. And I want you to write down point number one before we get through the text, but I want you to write down this. Figure out who Jesus claims to be, okay? Figure out who Jesus claims to be. He starts describing it a little bit in verse 17, 
Verse 18 was kind of the response to that. And then verse 19 to 29 is what we're going to look at right now. He's going to make three claims about himself that are huge claims. I want you to check out verse 19. We're going to go through the whole passage to verse 29 first. Let's check this out. It says in verse 19, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, whenever we see those two words together, by the way, truly, truly, it's only in the gospel of John. Okay? That's the only place in the Bible you see those two words together. Truly, truly. Those are the words that we get in English, amen. Okay? Amen. Like when you, you're done with praying, you say amen. What that means is truly. Like, yes, I agree with this. So Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you. So whatever he's going to say is hard to believe. It says, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. It says, the son, that's me, by the way, um, Jesus is talking, can do nothing unless he sees the father doing it. Now, that might sound like a humble thing to say, right, for Jesus. Well, here's the problem. What is Jesus calling himself? He's calling himself the son of God, the unique son of God. He's claiming a special relationship with God, and they did not like that. Look at verse 20, right? If you thought that was bad, it says, for the father loves the son, right? God loves me, right? What was the implication? He loves me more than he loves you, right? <laughs> try, try to say that to someone in your small group. Hey, guys, here's the thing. God loves me more than he loves you. They're like, wow, okay. <laughs> That's like a little offensive, right? It would be offensive if it weren't true, right? But here's what he says. The father loves me in a special way and shows him, the father loves the son and shows the son all that he himself is doing. Basically saying, I know more about what God's doing than you do, right? This is kind of getting to be a little annoying, what he's saying, if you think about it. It says, and greater works than these he will show me. And God has some other things that he's going to tell me about that you don't even know about. Whoa, interesting. So that you may marvel. You're going to be amazed at what happens here. He's going to do more impressive things. Look at verse 21. It says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Okay? Now we've kind of crossed the line here for Jesus. Jesus isn't just saying, God loves me more than he loves you. Right? God tells me more than he tells you. Right? He's saying, oh yeah, I can raise people from the dead. If this, I just really want you to imagine someone in your small group saying this, right? You'd get a little freaked out at this point. You'd say, oh, we need to call Alexander. We need to call Pastor John over here because this person's claiming to be able to raise people from the dead. Little creepy, little weird. Well, that's what Jesus is doing. He's claiming to raise people from the dead. He says, here's the thing. The father raises people from the dead. He says, I can raise people from the dead too. Interesting. Look at verse 22. I think we're in verse 22. It says, for the father judges no one but has given all judgment to the son, okay? We've stepped over another line that Jesus is saying. Literally, think about what he's saying. He's saying, God is described as the judge in the Bible, right? He's gonna be the judge of all the earth, right? Genesis 18 says that. All these places say that God's gonna judge. He says, there's something that you should know though. The father's actually not gonna do any judgment in the end. Guess who he gave the privilege of judging every single person's heart? Guess who gets to do that now? Jesus, right? So here's what he's saying. I... I'm going to judge all of you one day, right? Okay, if this is a person in your small group, you're kind of freaking out at this point, right? This is getting weird, what he's saying. I just want you to realize these are huge claims that he's making. Look at verse 23 now, next verse. It says that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Okay, he stepped across another line. Jesus is saying, everyone is going to worship me just like they worship God, right? Think about someone in your small group saying, everyone in the world is going to worship me like they worship God. 
you say, all right, now it's really time to get Pastor John or Alexander over here to get this person out of our small group. They're saying they're going to be worshipped like God is worshipped. Well, Jesus is claiming that. This is a huge claim. Verse 20, uh, middle of verse 23. It says, whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. He's basically saying, you can't even worship God unless you worship me first. Wow, big claim. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, this is hard to believe. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. If you believe me, if you trust me, I'll make you live forever, is what Jesus is saying. He does not come into judgment. I won't even judge you if you believe me. He is passed from death to life. Another truly, truly. Verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is already here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Those who hear, understand, listen, they're gonna live. What are you saying there? Is there are people who are dead who will hear Jesus' voice and live. What do you think he's talking about there? He's talking about spiritually dead, I think. He's talking about people in the audience, in his audience, and even people in our audience who start out the sermon spiritually dead. They don't know God. They don't have a relationship with God. And what Jesus is saying is, when people hear my words, guess what happens to them? I am gonna make them alive, right? There's no difference, or there's, there's no like third category between alive and dead, right? Think about it, right? If you're not alive, what are you, right? You're dead or you don't exist, right? But all of you exist. So you're either alive or dead. Same thing spiritually. You either are alive spiritually, knowing God, being a forgiven Christian, or you're what the Bible calls spiritually dead. So what he's saying is people are gonna hear his words and come to life, come to spiritual life. Verse 26, for the father has life in himself. That makes sense, right? God has life and he gives it to people. It says, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. Right? That's what John 1 said. He has life in himself and he gives life to people. Right? What if I said, hey, I want to tell you something. Um, I have life in myself and I can give it to you. Like I can make you alive. When you're dead, right? I can go to your funeral, touch you and make you alive. How about that? Oh, and by the way, um, I can touch a tree and turn it into a person. I can do that. And uh, by the way, this podium right here, um, I'm going to give it life and it's going to turn into um, a person or a cactus or something. I don't know, whatever you imagine, right? Um, you would say you're crazy, right? You're crazy. When Jesus says it, I just want you to realize, how would you really take it if you thought he was just a man? You'd probably say that's a little crazy what he's saying. Verse 27, he goes further. He has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man, which is a title from Daniel chapter seven. He says, don't marvel at this. Don't even be astonished, right? Wow, uh, I'm kind of marveling. I'm kind of astonished. It says, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Wow, this is getting really creepy now. Every person who's died, not just spiritually, every person who's died physically, every single person who's died, they're gonna hear Jesus's voice and Jesus is gonna, boom, wake him up, make him alive. Every person who's dead. This is getting a little creepy, right? Do you understand how creepy this is? Right? A little creepy. Jesus is saying immediately when he speaks a word, everyone will come to life. And it says people will go to one of two places. They'll either, those who've done good, those who've been saved people, they're going to go to the resurrection of life. I'm gonna make them alive to give them a good life. And those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment, okay? Three claims. I kind of went through that passage all the way because I wanted you to see it first. There's three claims. The first one is this. 
Jesus claims to be equal with God, okay? The first claim is Jesus is equal with God. That is what we'd call blasphemy, okay? That's blasphemy if it's not true. If I said I'm equal with God, that was a punish. I could get a punishment, especially in the Old Testament, I could get a punishment that would sentence me to death if I said I'm equal with God. Now, what's Jesus doing? Jesus is claiming that for himself. He's saying, I am equal with God. That's, that's crazy. And when you hear Jesus saying, I'm equal with God, that probably doesn't freak you out that much, does it? When you hear that, when you see, you're like, oh, well, yeah, I know Jesus is equal to God. Jesus is God. He's God and he's man, right? To us, that maybe that's easy to hear. But again, I want you to imagine someone in your small group saying that, okay? You would have a hard time accepting that, right? And you should have a hard time accepting that because everyone else who claimed to be God before Jesus was lying, right? Everyone who's claimed to be God since Jesus was lying. There's something, I, I don't know if, in particular, but there's like 14 people living right now who claim to be Jesus. Have you heard about that? Right? Who claim to be Jesus, like reincarnated. And it's really weird. Like if you ever look them up on YouTube or something, they're like totally convinced in their own mind or they're lying, um, but they're like convinced that they're Jesus, right? They claim to be God. They're deceived, right? We call them crazy people. Here's the problem. Jesus claims to be equal with God and that's true. He's the only person that's true about. The second claim that he makes here is that he's gonna judge you, okay? Second claim is Jesus will judge you. It's kind of a harsh way of thinking about it. Jesus will judge us. Well, that's true. He says that God, the Father, has given all authority to judge to him. Okay? You ever hear people say, you know, I don't wanna be judged by people like only God can judge me. You ever heard people say that, right? They say that like it's a good thing, right? They say that like they'd rather be judged by God than people when all people do when they judge you is just kind of look at you and they think you're weird, right? When God judges, he doesn't just look at you and think, oh, like you're kind of weird, like, like you're not up on the styles. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus looks at our hearts. He evaluates everything we've done, holds it up against the perfect standard of his word and says, you're guilty. And that's what he's saying. He has all authority to judge. And the people in the audience that he was talking to that didn't like him, that didn't believe he was God, guess what he's saying to them? I'm going to judge you one day. You think you're going to go to the Father. You're actually going to come through me first. A third claim that Jesus makes is that Jesus can give you eternal life. That's the third big claim here. Jesus can give you eternal life. That's something that, like I said, if I told you I have a, a thing that I can give you or a program I could take you through, that would make you live forever and ever and you'd never get old and you'd never die, you'd be like, you're lying to me. There's no way that's possible because every person that I've ever seen grow up gets older or they get out, they get older, they live, they get wrinkly, they gain some weight, their hair falls out, maybe get a little bit of gray or whatever and then they end up getting sick and they end up dying. That's what every person throughout history has ever done except for one. And, and look, here's the idea. Jesus giving us life, that's huge. You might think, well, I think maybe in the Old Testament, like prophets said that they could give life or, you know, maybe some godly people ever said that. Nobody ever said that. They all said that maybe God could give life. And if you repent and turn to God, he'll save you. They never said, I can save you. I'll do it. I have the power. But Jesus did. Jesus is either lying or telling the truth or he's crazy. He can give eternal life. We looked at this passage, but it's a good one to write down underneath that. John three sixteen through 18. Remember that verse, famous verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, not just believes things about him, but believes in him, trusts him, 
they will not perish, but they'll have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, right? To, to judge the world in a, in a harsh way, to condemn them. But in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here two chapters later. He's saying, if you believe in me, I have the power to bring you from death into life. And he says to pass out of death into life. I want you to like literally imagine like a place called death, right? Let's just say, um, well, we'll do it for the guy's side of the room. Let's just say this is this part of the room. We'll call it death, right? Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. And Caitlin, sorry. Um, yeah, she's there too. Um, but she's, she's in the guy, the guy section too, I guess. I don't know. We'll call this place death, right? This place we'll call life, I guess, because yeah, you girls are excited. You're, you're called life, right? What do you have to do when you pass out of death into life? What do you have to do? You've got to cross it, right? You've got to go from one place to another place, right? That's the way he describes being spiritually dead to be spiritually alive, that Jesus takes you there. Not that you like decide one day that, oh, you know, I'm dead. Yeah, dead people don't sit around saying, when should I resurrect myself? Uh, I guess I'll wait a little bit. I'll maybe give it a week or so, then I'll come back. That's not what they do. They're dead. They don't have power to do that. Someone has to do it to them. And that's the thing. Jesus says, I have the power to make spiritually dead people alive. And if you've never been made alive by Jesus, then that means right now you are spiritually dead. It means you, if you don't know God, right, you are in a state, you're in a place, you even imagine it's the side of the room called death. And Jesus has to bring you over into life and you have to ask him and he'll bring you. So those are big claims that Jesus makes. And I wanted you to think about a person in your small group saying them because if a person in your small group said them, you would be shocked, right? You'd be amazed. You'd be like, wow, how did you come to that conclusion? You'd be weirded out probably. Well, here's the next thing. Jesus says, I'm not, I don't want you to just take my word for it. I have reasons. I will give you reasons right now why you should believe me. Okay, that's the point number two. So we're gonna look at verses 30 to 40. Point number two is this. Um, I want you to test the witnesses of Jesus. Jesus presents witnesses and he kind of now, I mean, he's talking like it's a, like a courtroom, right? Uh, he is the person on trial. Now he shifts it to them and he says, here, I have witnesses now that will say something to defend me. I just made some big claims, right? We kind of started to understand who Jesus claims to be. Now he says, I have some witnesses. Look at verse 30, back in our passage. John 5, 30. He kind of repeats something he said earlier. I can do nothing on my own, but as I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will. I don't do whatever I want to do, but I do the will of him who sent me. What Jesus is saying is, when I will judge the world one day, it's not going to be independently. It's not just going to be me choosing people I like and choosing people I don't like. He's going based off of what God has said in his word. So he's going to judge one day, but he's not going to like make up the rules as he goes along. He's not doing it independently. He's doing it for God. Look at verse 31. He says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. What he's saying is, if I'm the only one that claims that this is true about me, you shouldn't believe me because I'd be crazy. Just like if a person in your small group said that, and nobody, and nobody else was confirmed that. No other witnesses said, oh yeah, they actually are God. Right? They'd be crazy. And Jesus says the same thing. He says, just don't take my word for it necessarily. Right? I, I want you to look at some proof here too. I want you to see the proof. Now, look at verse 31. Or you already looked at that. Verse 32. It says, there is another who bears witness about me. He doesn't even say who this person is. He says, he bears, and I know 
that his testimony, that he bears witness, is true. He's talking about God the Father there, and we'll see him come up again. But witness number one, I guess, would be God the Father. Witness number two, verse 33, you sent to John, right? John who? John the Apostle? No. John the Baptist, right? You talked to John the Baptist. And what did he say? He has borne witness to the truth. He stood on the witness stand and talked about Jesus. What did he say about Jesus? Do you remember that famous line that, Jesus, that John the Baptist said about Jesus? When Jesus was walking by, what did John the Baptist tell the people to do? Do you remember what he said? Someone shout it out. Remember what he said? He, someone said it. Behold, right? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right? That's what John already said about Jesus. That's John one twenty nine. John the Baptist already told people, hey, everybody, pay attention. That's Jesus. That's the Lamb of God. He's the one who can take away your sin. He already said that. Now, verse 34. It says, not that the testimony I receive is from man, not just saying it's John's opinion, um, but these things I, um, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Remember back in those times, there's no flashlights, there's no electricity, right? Well, not at least... No captured electricity. I guess there's lightning back then, right? But there was no light switches. So he says he was like a lamp. Imagine a, um, a lantern. You know, when you go camping, you know, there's those lanterns that, some of those LED lanterns that really shine really bright. Um, he says, John was like a lantern, okay? He was set out there and everyone kind of like, ooh, checked out the light for a little bit. He says, you enjoyed his light. You came, you heard from him, you heard the truth from him, but after a while, you got tired of hearing him. You thought he was kind of weird and you kind of just walked away and you left. So that's what he says. You listened to John for a little bit, but then you didn't really listen to him anymore. Verse 36. Here's another witness. He says, but the testimony I have is greater than that of John. He says, I have something that's even better than what John the Baptist said. This for the works that the Father has given to me to accomplish. The very works that I'm doing bear witness to me that the Father has sent me, okay? I want you to pause and remember, right, this is a long speech that Jesus gives. Where is he? What just happened, right? Remember what just happened? What happened last week, right? When Jesus healed this lame guy, right? This guy who couldn't walk, who couldn't walk for 38 years. Jesus comes, just tells him, hey, get up, take up your bed and walk. And he does that. And everybody's like, wow, Jesus, he can do things nobody else can do. He says, this is witness number three. Witness number one is the father. Witness number two is the, John the Baptist. Witness number three is the miracles. He's saying the miracles that I do, those are witness for you. Right? If someone in your small group claimed to be God, right, you'd say you're crazy. Right? But then if they like levitated something in the room, you'd be like, okay, well, maybe I need to start taking you a little bit more seriously. Right? And even levitating would be a trick. Right? That's the problem. Right? If someone did a miracle in your small group, some weird way, you know what you would think? You've been listening to Pastor John's sermon about magic tricks. That's a magic trick, right? That can't be real. That can't be right. If Jesus was living today, you realize if he did his miracles, you know what people would call those, right? They'd call them magic tricks. They'd say it's not real. They'd give their excuses. Right? And that's what they did back then too. They gave their excuses. They didn't even believe the, the works, the, the miracles that he did. Look at verse 37 now. It says, here's witness number four, or witness number one again, sorry. The father. It says, the father who you've sent to me, he has borne witness about me. His voice, though, you've never heard. His form, you've never seen. Right? You haven't seen God like I've seen God. It says, and you, here's the saddest part, you don't have his word 
abiding in you. You don't know what he wants you to do. You're not obeying God. He says, for you do not believe the one whom he sent. So, so the father, there's another witness. The last witness is verse 39. It says, you search the scriptures. You look in the Bible because you think that in them you have eternal life. And if you honestly followed the Bible, it would lead you to eternal life, but you don't have eternal life just in the pages of the Bible, right? It's not the Bible, right? If you, you know, were dying and you hung on to a Bible and said, well, the Bible's gonna save me, right? When I say the Bible, you know, can the Bible save you, right? Well, yeah, it can lead you to salvation, but can the pages save you, right? Can the rules save you, right? Can, even if it's a nice Bible, can it save? No, it can't save you. Here's the problem. Those people, the Jews, instead of trusting in God, like the Bible said, they trusted literally in the Bible itself, in their knowledge about God, not in God himself. He says the scriptures, you search the scriptures, you think you have life in them. He says, but it's they that bear witness about me. He says, what you don't realize is the Old Testament scriptures, they actually talk about me, Jesus is saying. He says, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He says, yet you're still not coming to me. I want to think about this. I know there's a bunch of witnesses here, but the main witness I want to think about with you guys tonight is the scriptures. How do the scriptures, how do the Old Testament writings talk about Jesus? Well, if you think about it, they talk about Jesus all the time, even from the beginning. The first time Jesus is ever referenced is in the third chapter of the Bible. Did you know that? It's not in the prophets. It's not in Isaiah. No, it's the third chapter of the Bible. That's the first time Jesus is ever read, uh, referenced. Genesis 3.15 says something about Jesus. It talks about how there's going to be this person that comes from Eve's family. God's talking to Eve at this point. It says there's going to be a person, there's going to be a son that comes from your family that's going to crush Satan's head. But in the process, he's going to be harmed too. He's going to have his heel bruised. It's like a guy stepping on a snake, right? And crushing the snake's head, but at the same time bruising his heel. Right? What is that talking about? What do you think that's talking about? That's talking about Jesus who he's going to be harmed in the process, but what is he going to do? He's going to crush Satan under his foot. When he dies on the cross, he's going to be harmed. Yeah, he's going to, it's going to hurt, but ultimately he's going to get the victory. He's going to win. That was in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 12. God makes a promise to a guy named Abraham. He says to him, hey, from your family, every family, every nation on the earth is going to be blessed. They're going to be happy. Every nation, every tribe is going to be happy because of your family, because of someone who's gonna come from your family, right? Who's he talking about there, right? Who comes through the line of Eve, through the line of Abraham, right? That's gonna lead us to Jesus. It goes further. Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. Genesis 49, verse 10, you know what it says? It says that there's gonna be a ruler. There's gonna be a scepter, which is the king's staff. It's always gonna be between the tribe of Judah's feet. And there's gonna be a ruler from the tribe of Judah that's gonna rule forever, right? Now we go from Eve, to Abraham, to Judah. Someone's going to come from this line. You see how it's all pointing towards somebody? It goes further. Deuteronomy 18, 18. We're going to find out here in our passage that Jesus says that Moses actually wrote about, about Jesus. He did. Deuteronomy 18, 18, he says, God's going to send a prophet to you guys, to the Israelites, and he's going to be like me but he's going to be a unique prophet because I'm the only prophet that knows God face to face, right? Moses had a special relationship with God that no other prophet had. He knew God face to face. They literally talked. He saw the back of his head is, is how it's described in Exodus 33. It says, there's going to be a prophet that's like me and he's going to speak God's truth. And then you know what it says at the end of Deuteronomy? It says, and there's not been that prophet. This hasn't been fulfilled yet. 
and we're still looking ahead. Who do you think that's talking about? It's talking about Jesus. These Pharisees, they should have known that. I said that there's a line, Eve's family, Abraham's family, Isaac, Jacob, Judah's family. There's a guy that comes from the line of Judah named David, okay? And God makes a promise to him. He says that the kingdom, this special holy kingdom, guess whose family it's always going to be in? It's always going to be in your family. And there's going to be someone who rules, who's actually going to rule forever, which is weird. It doesn't say that the family will rule forever. It says there's going to be a king that will rule forever. Pharisees should have known. This is talking about some son of David who's going to come. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7 says that there's going to be a king that's going to reign from David's throne, and he's going to reign forever and ever. And his kingdom is going to be a righteous kingdom. It's going to be a holy kingdom. He's going to come from David's line. Also, Isaiah 53 promises that there's going to be a servant, some person who's going to serve the nation of Israel. It says he's going to come and he's going to bear the sins of the people. It says he's going to be punished for the sins of Israel and the people of Israel will go free. God's people will go free because this servant is punished. Who do you think that's talking about? It's talking about Jesus. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, said that there's going to be a savior. The savior is going to be born in a town called Bethlehem. Who do you think that's talking about? It's talking about Jesus. Daniel chapter 7, I already mentioned this one. Daniel 7, 13 and 14 promises that there's going to be a son of man, this special person that's going to come from the father. He's called the ancient of days in that passage. And he's going to take the kingdom. God's going to give it to him. And he's going to reign forever and ever. You see how now when Jesus says, hey, the scriptures, they talk about me. These people, instead of trusting Jesus, what did they trust? Interest in Jesus, what did they trust? Ultimately, they were trusting themselves. He says, you don't even trust God. They trusted their own knowledge. See, that's, I think, the scary thing about this passage. You might think, well, how do I relate to any of this? Well, the Jews knew a lot about the Bible. A lot of you, you know a lot about the Bible. That's great. I think it's a good thing you know a lot about the Bible. The Jews did too. But here's the other thing about the Jews. They loved to learn. They loved to learn. They loved to know things about God's word. But they rejected them. They loved knowledge. They loved studying the Bible and knowing the chapters and the verses more than they loved Jesus. More than they loved even God themselves. That's why he says, God's love's not even in you. Really, the Bible was meant to prepare them to receive Jesus. And that's why we read the Bible. That's why we read the Old Testament and the New Testament. Because we want you and I want your heart to be prepared to say yes to following Jesus. But the problem is, these people saw their relationship with their Bible as the end in itself. Like, well, I'm just happy that I know about the Bible. When Jesus is like, no, you missed the point. The Bible is pointing to me and you need to know me, not the Bible. You need to know me. After hearing all those witnesses, it's like Jesus says at the end, right? Verse 40, he says, yet you refuse to come to me that you'd have life. It's kind of amazing, right? Think about it. Like after all of that, right? What's your verdict? What are you gonna say? I made these big claims. I presented these witnesses. What witnesses? The father, witness about him. John the Baptist, witness about him. The miracles proved that he really was God. And even the scriptures, especially the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, prove that Jesus was everything he said he was. He says, so what are you guys gonna do about it? And that question that Jesus presented to the Jews that he was talking to, I wanna present to you. If you have the information of the gospel and you know 
that you're a person living in God's world where God made it. God's a holy God, perfect, never sinned, never did anything wrong. And he demands perfection out of his creation. Yet you know that you haven't been that. You know that you've sinned and you know that you've done wrong. And you know that ultimately, if you got judged against what God said in his word, you know that you'd be guilty. You know that. And you know that Jesus was sent and that he came, lived perfectly in your place. He lived a perfect childhood, a perfect teenage years, perfect adult life, never sinned. And he went to the cross and died for you. And you know that. And you know the truth about it. And you even know that he rose again. He defeated death, just like he said. And he can give eternal life. And he knows that he asks two things of you. He asks you to turn from your sin and say, no, I'm not going to live for my sin anymore. I'm going to live for God. And he asks you ultimately, the most important thing, to trust him for salvation, not yourself. I just want you to realize that if you know that, and yet you're like, well, I'm just, I'm going to get back to whatever I was doing. I'm going to forget about this. Jesus is like trying to grab you through this passage and say, dude, you, what are you doing? You need to turn to me. You need to get saved. You need to turn to me. I don't care that you're 12. I don't care that you're 13. I don't care about that. If you understand the truth about God's word right here, and you know that Jesus can give you life, verse 24, look at it again, verse 24. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And he does not come into judgment, but he's passed from death to life. That he can make you literally alive, spiritually alive, when you're spiritually dead. He can make you spiritually alive tonight, right now. And then you say, well, I shrug my shoulders. I'll go on to the next thing. What's, what do I figure out with sports? What's going on with my family? What am I gonna eat tonight? Right? What do you realize? Like, it just doesn't make sense. That's why even when Jesus talks to them, look at verse 41. Let's go on to the next point, the next passage. Verse 41, Jesus says, I don't receive glory from people. He's not saying I'll never receive glory from people. He says he will at one point. But what is he saying? You guys aren't receiving me. These Jews, they weren't receiving Jesus. And he says, I don't even get the glory that I deserve from you. He says, but I know that, verse 42, I know that you don't have the love of God within you. You're not even acting according to the love of God. You, you probably, I mean, he's not saying probably. He knows them all together, just like he knows you. He knows like, hey, you're not really even, kids aren't obeying their parents. Siblings aren't getting along. Husbands and wives that he's talking to, they weren't getting along. He knows that they're, they're not obeying God's word. He says, you don't even have God's love in you. Verse 43, he says, I have come in my father's name and you don't receive me. But, you know, if another person came in his own name, you'd receive him. If a teacher came and said, hey, I'm a teacher and I got some interesting things to say, you'd be like, ooh, cool, like, let's listen to you, right? And Jesus is like, if some random teacher came and was just excited about what they were teaching, you'd just, you'd say, okay, that's great. But when I come, you don't receive me. Verse 44, he says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and don't seek the glory that comes on, from the only God. It says, you guys are so content. You're so happy with being patted on the back by your friends, your small groups, thinking you're godly. That's really what was going on here. They were just so happy and content with everybody's opinion of them, having their good reputations. They're all cool about that. It says, but you don't speak, seek a relationship with God. Verse 45, he says, don't think that I will accuse you to the Father, right? Back to the courtroom, right? Don't think that I'm gonna stand up on the witness stand and start yelling accusations at you. He says, you, I don't even need to do that. He says, you know who does do that? 
there is one that accuses you. Moses. You may be saying, well, why are you bringing Moses into this? He's not even alive at this point. Well, Moses is talking about the law. He's talking about the Bible that they love. He says, Moses is going to accuse you. He's going to stand at the witness stand. And he's going to look at your life and say, have you ever lied? Stolen? Had bad thoughts? Disobeyed your parents? Guilty. 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 And it's like, you know, imagine Moses and his word standing up, looking at all these people that Jesus is talking to, and their lives are all brought to the forefront. What does the law say? You're guilty about this. You're guilty. 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 In this point, this point, this point. A hundred thousand times in a lifetime. He says, I don't even need to accuse you. The Bible is already accusing you. He says, there is one who accuses you. It's Moses, on whom you've set your hope, right? That's who you're trusting. You're trusting Moses. The problem is, Moses is not who you should trust, right? The law is not what you should trust. Verse 46, he says, for if you would have believed Moses, you would have believed me. If you really knew what Moses was saying and what the law was for, you'd say, I need Jesus. Verse 47, but if you don't believe his writings, how will you believe my words? He kind of leaves at that question. And it's a question that I think it should lead us to a question to ask, what are we trusting? Right? Are we like them, putting our confidence in Moses? And for that, that was their understanding of the Bible. Like when I ask you, like, hey, are you going to heaven? If you say, yeah, well, I, I think so because like, I'm, I got good parents. You know, I, my parents are Christians. Um, which is, by the way, what they said in John chapter 8. They said, we have Abraham as our father. We don't need to be saved. We're already saved. We're born into the saved community. What do we need to be saved from? We're already Israelites. Right? And Jesus says, you don't even understand. If you sin, you're a slave to sin. Just like all of us. We're born. We're slaves of sin. We need to be saved from our sin. This courtroom language. Their confidence was in Moses. Here's what I want you to write down for point number three. Put all your confidence in Jesus to save you. Put all your confidence in Jesus to save you. That's ultimately what Jesus is saying. If you think back to verse 24, it's a helpful one. If you believe in Jesus, you believe his words, he'll give you eternal life. He'll, he'll give it to you. It's funny because they were putting all their trust in Moses. They wanted Moses to acquit them, right, to use the legal language. But it was Moses who was accusing them. Where's your trust? Is it like the Jews, like in your parents, that your parents are saved or that they're Christians? Is it in your knowledge of the Bible, like, like it was for these people specifically in John 5, where they thought, you know, I just know the Bible, so and I studied it. How could I, how could I not be in a right relationship with God? Or is it where God's people have their trust in Jesus, his perfect life, his perfect death, even his defeat of death? I told you that Bryson DeChambeau wants to live to be 130, okay? Um, I told you also, gave you a little sneak peek, this dude likes to work out. He likes to eat healthy. He's got a person that he's hired to be his nutritionist, and all this stuff. Right? If you were really going to live to be 130 by being healthy, right, even if that was possible, you know what that would take a lot of? Take a lot of work, right? It'd be really hard. You have to work really hard and give your whole life to it and make sure that you're just doing everything you can. Right? If I offered you a chance to live forever and ever, right? And I said, it's really hard. You'd be like, yeah, okay, I get that it's really hard. It's a fine thing. You know what Jesus says? It's not hard. I have done all the work for you. 
He does not say what you need to do in response to this message is try to be a good Christian and try to be, you know, really righteous and really holy and really try to obey your parents. He just says one thing, believe in me. Just trust me. Stop trusting yourself. Trust me. That's what Jesus says. In our minds, we just think it always makes sense to to earn our way or to try to get God's favor or try to maybe impress God like like he doesn't know what we're going to do already. Jesus calls you to just stop trusting yourself. He says, don't trust you, just trust me. Ask me to save you, and he will. John chapter five, and we just did basically a whole chapter this week, even more than that, if you count what we did on Wednesday. The main lesson is that Jesus wants us to understand who he is, right? That was point number one, understand his claims. Then put his claims to the test. He says, I'm fine with you testing those, because I have witnesses. There's reasons to believe. But ultimately, what he's calling you to is a verdict. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to trust me? Are you going to trust yourself? You need to turn to God and trust him. You trust Jesus. Let's pray for that right now. God, I pray that you would make some of these students who are right now dead in their sins, they think that maybe that they just stick it out and try to read their Bibles more, try to obey their parents more. They think that maybe that will make them okay with you. I also pray for the students that know that they're, they're doomed without you. Pray that you would make them alive, that you'd be like, that you'd fulfill your promise. You say here that you're going to call people who are dead and you're going to make them pass from death to life. You're going to drag them across the line and resurrect them. Pray for these students, many of whom I, I know, I'm sure, are spiritually dead. They've never known you. Pray that they would ask you and they'd turn to you, they'd trust you, that you'd give them new life you knew eternal life in Christ. Thank you for using Jesus to give us life. I know that he's going to judge us all one day, and I know that everyone who believes in him are not going to go through a condemnation judgment. But Jesus is going to pass us from death to life, and he's going to give us eternal life, perfect eternal life with him. Pray that students would start to see that that's a big deal and that this is all about them. Pray that they would turn to you, that they would trust you, that you'd make them alive. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.